Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Digital Bob phone, he's our guest, Guardian columnist and author, John Harris. Well, my ship's been split to splinters and it's sinking fast. I'm drowning in the poison, got no future, got no past. But my heart is not weary, it's light and it's free. I've got nothing but affection for all those who've sailed with me. Everybody moving if they ain't already there. Everybody got to move somewhere. Stick with me, baby. Stick with me anyhow. Things should start to get interesting right about now. Good choice for our Bob's 80th birthday uh, podcast. Uh, We both, I know, love that song, and clearly you do too. Why did you choose Mississippi? Uh, I chose it because it's pretty much perfect, as you've just kind of said. It doesn't put a foot wrong. It also does something which I like or love about Dylan's songs, particularly in the sort of post-time-out-of-mind phase of his career, which is that it's quite bleak. It acknowledges the sort of emptiness. It's almost sort of godless, really. There's a line later on. I changed horses at the 11th hour because I was going to read out the last eight lines, but I chose not to two minutes before we started. (laughs) But, you know, it has that line, the emptiness is endless, cold as the clay, which is just unbelievable, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's the same emptiness you hear in, in... all kinds of his songs. I mean, going even further back, it's the same emptiness in bits of Visions of Johanna and Blind Willie McTell. You know, that's that lurks there always. And yet he sort of acknowledges that emptiness and says that we're all confronted with this and there's a sort of solace in it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Things just start that's to get all... interesting. Is, yeah, I think, that's... One of his hopeful lines, which yeah, is totally. where is that so, he throws totally. in. You know? Totally. And then the other, I have these emotional associations with it because... When that record, Love and Theft, came out on September the 11th, 2001, accidentally, um, I just got completely immersed in it. I just played it and played it and played it. And around about that time, I spent a lot of time in the deep south on holidays, mostly. I I went there sort of four or five times and kept it in short order and kept playing that album as as I or we, the people I was with, as we went around. And obviously, it completely, perfectly fits that. I mean, if you... (laughs) drive across the Mississippi Delta with love and theft on, you're kind of there, right? Wow. Mm, so yeah. that there's that as well. But also it confirmed that he was just on this amazing streak, you know, just thinking, I can recall listening to it and thinking, this is as good as Highway 61 or Blonde or Blonde or Blood on the Tracks, isn't it, really? And isn't that an amazing thing? And that sort of made it even greater. And I think I saw him play at Brighton Centre, not, I don't know how long after the record came out, but he was great that night as well. So all of those associations, really. It's a brilliant, brilliant song. And I, I, I love the way it's, it's tracked too as well. That They do um, Tweedledee and Tweedledum or the other way around. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah, yeah. It sort of wrong foots you a bit and then along comes yeah. Mississippi, you know. So everything, everything about it, it's context, what it means to me, the content of it is just brilliant. Have you heard the, the Cheryl Crow version? Because that I think she was given the song by Dylan and released it before it came out. That's right. Oh, right. Or his, before yeah. his version came out, and yeah. um, that's completely different. I mean, it give, it doesn't really give any hint of what's coming further down the line, in the sense that it's quite a sort of breezy, upbeat kind of version of it. She sings too well, I think. And yeah. it's too, well, you can argue she plays it too fast, you know, because it is a it yeah. is a somewhat pensive, mournful sort of song. Yeah. But but it doesn't really 
tell you the the depths that are lurking within it, and then along comes yeah. Dylan's version. You go, wow, you know. Well, when Cheryl Crow's version came out, I remember reading that this was an outtake from Time Out of Mind, and I was listening yeah, to it thinking, yeah. this is this does not sound like Time Out of Mind. There's something very very strange going on here, as yeah, you say, totally. breezy. You know, no, no Cheryl Crow's version sounds like a, an advertisement for the Mississippi Tourist Association. You know, you think it does. Oh, yeah, sounds fun. Yeah, whereas this my, my ship's been if you're going to Mississippi, if you're going to Mississippi, be careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, as you, I agree with you about the the album being the equal of anything he did in the sixties. I I just love that album. Even even Tweedledum and Tweedledee, which seems at first maybe to be not as deep as the other songs, but it's still fascinating. You said, John, that you know that that line, things should get interesting right about now. Um, things should start to get interesting right about now. For that yeah. to happen in 2001 for him to be saying of his own career well now it's going to get interesting <laughs> it was a was a little bit in, well interesting wasn't it to hear that yeah i took it i took it as him sort of narrating his own progress because to some extent you always do but it's just such a rich record as well i mean because of september the 11th partly i suppose i don't know whether you remember reading all that grail marcus stuff grail marcus had a i think a, at least one piece of writing in rolling stone all about high water for charlie Patton. And mm-hmm. how that sort of resonated accidentally with September the 11th. And Tweedle, I remember some, I had a friend who said that Tweedledee and Tweedledum was all about Tony Blair and George Bush. I don't know where they got that from. <laughs> you know what? That was actually my total, that was my first response. Totally. Go, I thought it was about, I, there, there was no evidence for it in the song. <laughs> but, you know, at the time, you just thought these two assholes are doing. Yeah, my the, friend Martin is an English things. teacher. He, I think he sent me sort of, like a four or five paragraph essay about why this was <laughs> about Tony Blair and, and George W. Bush. But those things are not specifically true, but I suppose in the sense that the album sort of evokes a certain sort of anxiety and a sense that the, the world is not in the right place at all. It's mm-hmm. still in doing what he always does, which is being a lightning rod, right? So he, it channels the mood really, really well, you know. And, we um, had Neil Gaiman it, on here a few about a year ago, and he said all you need to appreciate this stuff is being in an apocalyptic state of mind, and I think that that kind of sums it up pretty well. Yeah, but also there's again there's a, re- a sort of reassuring or reassuring-ish quality there, partly because of what he sings and, and the fact that the lyrics are sort of um, are absolutely full of references to American history and the sort of you know eternal things about America. He's telling you that it is like this, but it's been like this before. That's the other thing. I mean, all of those sort of post-time out of mind records to me bring to mind that, what's that quote from Ecclesiastes? All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye has never had enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I mean, that that might as well be written on all of those albums after time. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a Bob Dylan lyric, actually. (laughs) So when did you first, um, just to go go back and, and get a bit of an overview, when did you first hear Bob? I think the first time I heard him was on a Radio 1 show that used to broadcast on Saturday lunchtimes. And this shows you how long ago it was. It was called 25 Years of Rock. Because <laughs> there'd only been 25 years then. Wow. Right, so it suggests to me yeah. that it either came out in 1980 or 1981. I think they were doing that slightly cliche thing where you say the first rock and roll record was Rock Around the Clock, which, as we all know, isn't quite right. But anyway, that's what it was. And they were great, these things. I used to tape them. They were all an hour long, and they were like a sound collage of the year in question, right? So they would have most of a record would sort of fade in and then fade out again. And in between it, they'd have bits of whatever the news was, you know, like reports from Mm. Vietnam or bits of civil rights marches or, you know, Harold Wilson winning an election or whatever it was. 
And the one for the one for nineteen sixty five had like a Rolling Stone on it, and it I can't remember what preceded it. A bit of newsreel, and then in came that whip crack snare, and yeah. like a Rolling Stone started. And I was like ten years old or eleven years old. So I was like, what is this? You know. And so I was into the Beatles by then, maybe the Stones a bit, I think. I was a sort of slightly strange child. I didn't really like Adam and the Ants and whatever was the <laughs> contemporary thing. And um, I went to the library where I lived, and I think I, I think they had you had no, you know, obviously you got what you were given. They might have had that Budokan, that live album. I think I might have borrowed that, which gave, I was a bit of a weird steer. A lot of people have started with that, weirdly, you know, just because they're your age and are... are yeah, you know, that was current. It is time. a weird steer, though, yeah. And then I think I got hold of Highway 61 Revisit, but I also got the... They had the Book of Sheet Music in my local library in Wilmslow in Cheshire. And not long after that, I was learning to play the guitar. And I um, I constructed a harmonica holder. I must have got hold of a harmonica in C. And I made a harmonica holder out of a coat hanger. And I learned the chords... C, D minor, F and G to, to like a Rolling Stone. I, I, I must have driven everyone mad. <laughs> I was just up there most Saturday afternoon sounding like this castrati. My voice hadn't broken, I don't think, version of Bob Dylan. <laughs> singing like a Rolling Stone with a harmonica <sighs> around my neck. And um, I, that, it sort of went from there, really. And I sort of progressed through the way probably a lot of people do. Stuck with the 60s albums including the acoustic ones, which I, I appreciate the importance of, but I don't listen to that often. I like um, mm. I like another side of Bob Dylan. That's when it sort of things get interesting right about then. Mm-hmm. I know that yeah. might be heretical. I'm not, I don't quite like times that are changing and blowing in the wind. I mean, I understand why they're important, but I'm with you. I'm, I find blowing in the wind a bit, a bit earnest. Well, um, also I had our primary school, they used to make us sing that as a, as a secular hymn. I had a sort of modern education. Ugh. Holy. Ugh. And that killed it. I mean, if anything will mm. kill it, it's, yeah, singing it at assembly every morning. And then, you know, by the time I was in my sort of mid to late teens, I suppose, I was listening to Blood on the Tracks and uh, Desire and what have you. And then at university, I suppose, you know, with slight trepidation, it's not like in the world of Spotify. I think I probably bought Empire Burlesque and things out of curiosity. Thought, right, in for a penny, in for a pound. <laughs> You know, the people who got into Dylan in the 80s are the real brave ones. I think they're the ones we should salute. Yeah, but it's, there's always it's something. A tough time. There's always no, something. No, that's true. That is true. I mean, we, we were just saying we both listened, I think, to, to Down in, a, in the Groove this week, mm-hmm. you know, talk about disparaged albums. And there's some good stuff on there. There, You know, I, I enjoyed Cats it. In the, it was... Cats in the Well is on Down in the Groove, isn't it? No, that's, that's under the Red on, Sky. No, under, under the Red, red Sky. sky. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but it, on Down in the Groove, there's, well... Oh, no, hold on. Down in the Groove's no, the one nobody ever talks about. Has that got Wiggle Wiggle right. on it? No, no, that's, no that's, that's again under the red sky. That's but, again under the red sky. No, Down in the Groove, they don't <laughs> talk about it because they don't talk about any of the songs on it. You know, there's, most people say it's not worth talking about. It's it's about three quarters covers. I think there's like, yeah. two or three. It's got the ugliest girl in the world on it, okay. which is either his most misguided song, certainly one of them, or maybe not. I listened to it and I thought, okay, Bob, I I kind of see what you're getting at. I don't like it. I think it's creepy and probably misogynistic, but I get it. And it's not, it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, I mean, anyway, that's, that's my little take on. Well, on if that. it, if it reminds you, John, in, in the um, special issue of Q that's uh, from uh, 2000, when you went through all of Dylan's albums, I think you gave Down in the Groove one star, but, and you said it, it best. I remember buying Silvio. it. 
I remember buying it in order to review it. Right. And there was, <laughs> I think, as I recall, on HMV, you got the sense they had lots and lots of all the other records, <laughs> and there was one copy of, of, of that record that had been on CD that had been sitting there for years and years. I'm going to drop my foot in it again. Is it down in the groove that's got some of the Sex Pistols and the Clash playing on one of the tracks? That is right, isn't it? You stumped us. You're going to have to get online, Luke. Certainly, but the, yeah, but I'm most of them, most of them pay dividends, and and in fact, there are kind of overlooked parts of his career. I mean, Joker Man, for example, that's hmm. that's completely understood now as being part of the canon. Whereas I think people were very sniffy about that period of his career for ages. You're infidels, yeah. I think, yeah, totally. I think it, yeah, no, it, it, well, he was coming out of the born again years, and yet there were still songs on, on infidels that you know had some sort of seemingly Christian connection, so people weren't quite sure. That's that was the thing about Dylan, like, I was waiting, I, I was asking people, is he over it yet? Because I'm not sure I can deal with another Christian album. And and people would say, I don't know. <laughs> you can't you can't really tell. He mm. hasn't said anything. Yeah, he yeah, hasn't yeah. said I renounced all this stuff. He never said that. Like cuz he's Bob Dylan, of course he's not going to. But he but sort the, of I mean he gradually went in and he gradually comes out of that phase. Yeah, gradually. I mean mm. similarly people think street legal sort of serves notice that things are heading in that direction, right? Eden is burning and all that and changing of the guards. Yeah. Hmm. And I think that's similarly similarly right, isn't it? It's not like he abruptly leaves behind the Christian phase. It's just no, that no, com- no, there comes I mean, a point yeah. where you realise he's not he's not nearly as immersed in it as he was a few years. Back. Well, he started doing the secular songs live again, right? So that was uh, that was a pretty good sign. But also, I mean, Joker Man is to some degree about Jesus Christ, isn't it? Isn't it standing on the waters, casting your bread? I, I mean, think it probably <laughs> is. Yeah, sure. I don't even see with Joker Man. I don't. It's never even crossed my mind to inquire about what it's about, because it's just one of those songs where all the conjunctions of the words and the, and the vowels and the consonants just all sound yeah. fantastic, and that will do, you know. Yeah, I mean, who's to say really what it's about? Some I people say know. it's about him, but it's never about one thing, is it? I mean, it's never, no. except for Nashville Skyline or something like that. But even even those things, when I listen to those, very simple songs. I still get more stuff out of them. I can, you can still get stuff out of the most simple Dear Dylan lyric. It's actually mm. that deep. Apart from Country Pie. Well, I was about to say, the, the day you well, discover the Country Pie is, <laughs> is, 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 is as filthy as it is. Uh, tie um, me on her and <laughs> no, saddle me up a big white goose. Tie me on her and turn right, her loose. Okay, that was yeah. all the, everyone's saying, oh, well, he's a, he was talking about his heroin years there. Well, it also the... Oh, seriously, um, have you not heard that? <laughs> yeah. The, and also the thing about um, you know in Hamlet when when uh, Hamlet says to Ophelia, "Shall I lie in your lap?" and then he says, "Oh, did you think I meant country matters?" You know, there's a there's a mm. there's a that that pun's at work in Country Pie for sure. Okay, yeah. I stand corrected again. Well, no, I mean just have a uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, or it, it could, could be you can't say. Yeah, it. It's about, no. I thought it's about nice food. <laughs> Oh, my, partner, my partner, my partner, my partner had a had a, a kitchenware and cookery bookshop for three or four years. It was called Country Pie. There you go. In honor really? of the song. Good. Well, that we've 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 taken care of uh, Nashville skyline. All the um, all the filth and drug references in Nashville skyline. <laughs> and you were right about um, Steve Jones and Paul Simonon playing on Down in the Groove. By the ah, way. good. See, I got that yes. one right. Because we are talking about, I mean, a, a, a very very unloved album that I've played yeah. once in my whole life. Yeah, well, I'd hardly heard it at all uh, either until uh, Luke made this playlist of 
every Bob Dylan song that's ever been recorded or that he had anything to do with. And it's all in chronological order. And uh, so if you put that on shuffle, you never know what's going to come up. Yeah, see, that's good. So mm. it was, it's quite, I mean, I've, I listen in the shower and sometimes I'm stuck with, uh, this morning I was stuck with Allen Ginsberg <laughs> doing something called, I think I told you, Lou. Yeah, Vomit Express, you said. Yeah. Vomit Express, which is actually a jolly little song that Bob Dylan probably plays guitar on because uh, he's, he's listed as one of the people on it. And it's, it's six minutes of a rather jolly um, Allen Ginsberg who can't sing to save his life going, let's all go on the Vomit Express or something. So you got to be careful with that. <laughs> That's what um, lies but, beyond down in the groove. Now we know. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Going back to classics, should we? Yeah. Should we? You know, yeah. just discuss a yeah, discuss a few as it's the 80th uh, birthday. Um, what about you know? Let's let's just approach Blonde on Blonde, which we've approached before on the podcast. But anything particular to say about that? I heard about Blonde on Blonde, like from someone talking about it before I heard it, because I had a friend with a slightly older brother. And he, he used to appear at school and say, this song, Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, you've got to hear this. It goes on forever. <laughs> and, and this went on, because obviously, you know, this is pre-internet, so you had to find some means of getting the record, right? Like saving mm. up your paper and money or whatever it was, you know, before you could find out. So by the time I heard that song, I mean, you know, we had a bit of an expectations thing going on, but it, it delivered. Mm. And on vinyl, the great thing is that you turn it around and you think, Good God, it's the whole of this song. <laughs> yeah. So that, I have that association with Blonde on Blonde. Some of it is probably a little too familiar now. I don't, I, I'm not sure I can listen to I Want You. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Just Like a Woman, because mm-hmm. I've heard him so many times. But it's got Visions of Johanna on it, but not the best version. No, go uh-huh. on. What's, what's the best uh-huh. version? Go, then, on. John, go on. Let's get in there. I think the best version is the one on Live 1966. I'll go further. I think it's the album, the the London one rather yeah, than the I Manchester one. I can see that. I played that the other day. Although controversial choice on the uh, the Highway sixty one period blonde on blonde period box set, the cutting edge, uh, an early fast take with a sort of shuffle rhythm, which he obviously didn't like because it ends and he goes, "Oh, this isn't right at all," or whatever he mm-hmm. says. I think yeah. that's great. Yeah, there are a couple of fast ones on there which are not both. the one they put out as a trailer single. No, which no, has the this other sort of one. charging rhythm. The one yeah. that's got more swing on it. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's absolutely superb, almost as good. I See, think... that was that was. I chose Mississippi, right? And I, but ultimately, if it was like, look, what's like a lot of people like? What's your absolute favorite? I suppose if if push comes to shove, it's, it's Visions of Johanna, which are all everything everybody says, you know. That it's the late twentieth century's wasteland and all that. I mean, I think that's mm. a, that's absolutely correct. And going back to Live sixty six, do you think there's anything in the notion that a version of, if not the idea itself, of rock music comes out of those years? I mean, do you think that he sort of invented what we now call rock? I wrote music? that in a headline once. <laughs> yes, you did. It was <laughs> you. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a leading question. Yeah, I mean, I think. It's either him or the Beatles, right? Yeah. And probably both simultaneously sort of feeding off each other. The if you understand ride, rock, yeah. rock, rock as the point at which rock and roll acquires greater substance and has a claim to be an art, mostly because of the lyrics, but also partly because of sort of greater musical sophistication, then I think that 
that sort of quietly begins to cohere probably round about the time in Dylan's case on another side of Bob Dylan, right? I mean, it's sort of, mm. the ideas there in Gates of Eden and things like that. Mm. And then once he goes electric, it, it sort of flowers. Um, and, and it's dramatized. I mean, the, the point about the blonde on blonde life 66 period being the sort of crucible of rock is it's born in that confrontation. You know, you have to hear the crowd going balmy and not liking mm. it. And what they don't like is the fact that the sort of literary poetic depth that they associate with him is suddenly combined with noise and raucousness, you know, like all those images in the Scorsese footage of him, you know, when he sort of impishly jumps from foot to foot and holds his hands up to his mouth yeah, and all that, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm. And it's a bit sort of punk. I mean, even down to the way that he looks, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. it's oh, absolutely. Can you imagine, you know, a few years before, he was wearing a work shirt and rolled up sleeves. And now he, he shows up in a leather jacket and, you know, looking like a like nobody's ever really looked before. Totally. So it's those mm. two those two things somehow. I think with our tongue in our cheeks slightly once, when I was at Q Magazine, we said, oh, it's his electric priest phase, which I quite sort of like. You know, it's like he's imparting all this wisdom with a Fender Stratocaster and, you know, and he's wired apart from anything else. So in all those, somehow in all those sort of combination of things, you kind of understand what rock is, right? Well, yeah. And what I liked in in the um, in the collector's edition of Q that you um, edited that came out in two thousand, um, there was a, a, I think three or four pages about the Newport Festival um, where you you took bits and pieces from uh, various people that were there, Joe Boyd and uh, yeah. you know who, whoever, and, and including Al Cooper. And there's always something. I thought I'd read everything that Al Cooper had said about really anything to do with Dylan, but when I maybe I'd, everybody knows this, but. Al Cooper said that he'd bought a ticket to um, the festival and somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, uh, okay, he'd already done like a Rolling Stone with Bob, but he just showed up to, to the festival. And somebody said, Bob wants to see you. Um, you know, he's playing here tomorrow and he wants to see you. And, and so he went back and Bob said, yeah, yeah, um, I'm going to do this electric set. Do you want to join me? And it was that... He said in, in this thing that I read in Q, you're looking a bit bemused, sorry. Um, <laughs> nobody oh, else can see that. Bemused, no. <laughs> but but um, yeah, Bob said, uh, you know, we're going to rehearse tonight. Do you want to join us? And uh, Al Cooper said when he arrived, Dylan wasn't sure that he was going to do an electric yeah, set, yeah. which I found astounding. Yeah, it's amazing. And then they rehearsed all night. Uh, Al Cooper said they didn't really ever say, wow, we've really got this one. You know, we've, we've nailed Maggie's farm. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, they were shit scared uh, anyway, just because they were under-rehearsed. Uh, oh, yeah, but isn't that what's great about that, about that, A, the, the audio, and B, the footage, you know, is you can tell they're flying by the seat of their pants, right? Yeah. Which, the again, is, it, which again the time is, and is kind of part of it. It's, it's rock and roll, as you were saying. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that, yeah totally. You know, and that, that is what it, people say it is. And it becomes rock. And the people who are left behind, I suppose, by, by rock and roll becoming rock and Dylan going the way that he went were the people that you see in those bits of uh, Eat the Document and so on, when they're, when they're so sort of offended. It's like, yeah. well, sorry, you're yesterday's papers now. This is going somewhere else, you know. I spent much of the spring of 2017 immersing myself in the recently released 1966 box set, and I started going through all the shows. And this was against the backdrop of Brexit in, in sort of spring 2017. And I started to hear the, the kind of anger and the division and the sort of binary quality that it seemed to 
to be to live in this country at the time was very very compatible with this huge sense of anger and betrayal that the the, the British fans felt. You know, he was this, now he's this, and it was it was binary and it was anger. Yeah, and it yeah. was, you know, it was really clear cut. But that, but to sort of again, you know, it shows you that we don't live in the. Although I take your point on Brexit, for music to carry all of that and for people to project that onto it, that's sort of a, a different world, right? Mm. I mean, it's a shame that we've lost that sense of music being as vital and as important and carrying all that weight. But it, you can't imagine that happening now. Because the other thing is, let's not forget, that was ritualistic, right? I mean, they knew, they, they'd known Dylan had gone that way for at least, what, a year or 18 months yeah. Right? Yeah. before that happened. But they were, they were turning up because they wanted a ruck, right? And again, that, that, you can't imagine that now, couldn't you? I mean, it, the way we receive music now when it's played live, can you remember that, you know, but when we did before the pandemic. Yeah. We're so reverent. Can you imagine someone spending 40 or 50 quid to go to the O2 to throw things and boot? <laughs> it's I know it's a, but it's something about this this country as well and, and because if you listen to that box set they they're kind of okay in Australia and in you know Copenhagen and places like that and it gets to Ireland and you can hear the kind of tangible shock that they, that Dylan and the Hawks realise that these guys are up for a fight. In, yeah. I think it's in Dublin. And then the next yeah. night they play Belfast ready for a fight that doesn't actually happen. So yeah. it gives this music this kind of edge. And then from then on, every every place they play, they're, ju- they're just in trouble and, and totally. loving it. You know? totally. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. That I mean, if, do you own that box set then? The one oh, that's yeah. got 36 oh, yeah. CDs on it. Oh, yeah. It's fascinating. I, had to re- I, re- I reviewed that for Mojo and I got, I got sent streams of it with like a finite date on it. And I, one of the strangest professional things I've ever done was that I just shut myself in this room I'm talking to you from for two and a half days with <laughs> yeah. a notepad and just listened to office hours, like nine till one, listen to Dylan in 1966, have lunch, two till six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what you can do, um, you know, around about sort of May time, start picking the concerts and listen to them on, on the anniversary of when they actually happened. You just do one, one a day for, for a while, you know, and then you start to get sort of a bit, a bit obsessed, <laughs> admittedly. <laughs> I'm still recovering from the last time. So how did you respond to um, Dylan going uh, country or, or John Wesley Harding? I mean, you were still fairly young, so I don't know when you... No, but I came to Upsam, but we were born that. in that... I was born in 1969, so I listened to a lot. My experience of this is all in a funny order, like anybody. Yeah. You, it's more in the order of, of its sort of obviousness and whether it's in the canon. So, you know, you do Highway 61, blonde on blonde, bringing it all back home. As I said, it was a little bit quirky because for some reason my local record shop only had another side of Bob Dylan, so that might have been the first one that I bought. And then I think uh, Blood on the Tracks came after that and then Desire because that's sort of in the same moment. John Wesley Harding took me quite a while. I don't recall that sort of being on my radar around that time. Maybe Nashville Skyline first, innocuous as I like the cover, and then John Wesley Harding later. But I've played John Wesley. I've played bits of John Wesley Harding on stage. Toby Litt, the author, mm-hmm. at the Port Elliot Literary Festival, decided he was going to do five or six songs from, from John Wesley Harding. And I was, oh, in, a, I was oh. in an author's band at the time. And he said, would you learn them? And I got roped into playing harmonica on the title track, and I played country guitar, and I'll be your baby tonight. Well, well, well. Very austere, though, that record, isn't it? it it's not not the warmest of his. I mean, he's sort of com- he's confronting 
the world and saying, I'm really not like you want me to be here. And, um, you know, from the cover onwards, you know, it's not the fellow in the polka dot shirt anymore. So I remember being quite sort of struck by that. Mick Farron, the writer, once said to me of John Wesley Harding, he said, after Blonde on Blonde, they had this idea that it would carry on sort of ballooning and getting more and more psychedelic, almost like Dylan's hair would sort of, you know, expand to the point that he was reaching the outer stratosphere. And he said, we wanted a big meal and he gave us a salad. <laughs> Which I kind of see, it is a bit like, it's good for you, isn't it? But, you know, it's a little bit, it's sort of a bit chewy and you want a bit more dressing with it. But um, it doesn't go off as quickly as salad, though. I think, I, I think John Wesley Harding, for me, is the one that not, I come back to is, again and again and again. Yeah, it's not boring like salad like a lot of, you know, bad salads. You know, it's not just full of goodness and vi- vitamins to, to <laughs> torture the analogy to death. But I agree. I keep going back to it. I, I never get tired of that album. Um, and it's one of the, one of the few I, I think I, yeah, I could just play it forever. It's just odd in the chronology as well, isn't it? Because that comes, it's like, well, what happened to the, if you, if you, you understand that in the context of his career and so on, you're thinking, well, what happened to the basement tapes then? Because he goes, he goes mm. out of the, ba- is that right? He goes out of the basement tapes right. sessions yeah. in with John Wesley Harding, right? Yeah. And you'll think, exactly. and you look back now and go, hold on a minute, what happened to Mr. Million Dollar Bash? Yeah. Or chorus. Nobody I could mean, open yeah. the door home and please, Mrs. Henry, where did all that go? Exactly. And- no, the guys were sort of like, so where's Bob? Oh, he's, you know, he's gone for like, well, he only, he went down to Nashville for like only three days. Right. And I don't think he mentioned it to them. You know, he just was, he just did, wouldn't. And he'd be back and yeah, boom, uh, they're doing the uh, clothesline saga, you know. But it's the first, it, weirdly, it's that what we were talking about in relation to post-Time Out of Mind stirs in John Wesley Harding, doesn't it? It's apocalyptic somewhat. Yes. And it conjures mm. up this sort of enduring, eternal, monochrome sort of America, great wide spaces full of anxiety, important and all of that. It's all there. Mm. Yeah, two riders were approaching. Could easily yeah, be on love and theft. It's very, it? very prophetic in that mm. sense, as regards what comes later on. Yeah, but then he sort of, again, he sort of, he's moving so fast, he sort of ditches that pretty quick. Because John was the adding to to um, to Nashville Skyline. I mean, you can you can draw threads, but they're very very different. Right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Well, the last two tracks are are a bit John Wesley Harding, but but it's like that. It almost stands alone in that biblical. I think it does. There's nothing the else forest like it. Weirdness. I don't think there's anything like that. Once someone showed me the Beatles' faces in the trees, I mean, that flipped me. Really? Yeah, I can remember feeling quite unsettled by that, thinking, wow, he is really sort of dealing in magic here, isn't he? Well, it's very unsettling, even without the Beatles in the trees, just as, yeah, I remember when I I kept thinking, who are those guys? Yeah, yeah. Who are they? There was no, you know, I didn't find out until a few years ago, thanks to the internet. (laughs) <laughs> that they were the they were recording they were under contract to Albert Grossman apparently that uh, they did an album um, for for Grossman but I mean who knew and it's just it's so and then there's the handyman we also find out you know via the the internet that the guy in the cow in the um, baseball cap behind Dylan's shoulder is just a local handyman <laughs> what's going on he's mending the garden wall wasn't he yeah. And it's incredibly and, and cold as well, apparently, in that photo. Apparently, they yeah, say no, it I read that into below. it. I read that into it. Or maybe again, I read I... that in your in your Q magazine, which I've reread recently. I think I think I did actually read that and Q Collector's Edition, that it was 20 below. And I thought, really? Was it really, John? Because um, they, I mean, <laughs> I've been in 20. Me. I didn't know. <laughs> Andy Gill the thing. But I've been in 20 below weather, which not a lot of people can say. You know, where I come from, it's 20 below every winter. Uh, it's 40 below. 
And to stand there in a little suede jacket is completely insane. I mean, that's just nuts. So uh, it's either, um, well, Bob Dylan is completely insane, or um, or you, you printed a bad fact, John Harris. <laughs> well, I'm saying it was 20 below. Okay. There's not, there's not a single factual error in the whole of that magazine. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, no. then why is also, the rest come not on, freezing? Man. Print a legend. Come on. The, it, yes, the no, fact that's that it true. was 20 um, below is better, Absolutely. Isn't it? I like 20 below. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. No, that 20 below is good. It's much better than 22 below or 18 below as well. Exactly. Or minus John, three or something boring. Being, being born when you were then, so what is the first Dylan album that you heard at the time of release? Do you remember? God, what a question. Well, I'm I'm two years younger than you, and for me, it was kind of Oh Mercy ish around then. So, yeah, the music, the enemy said Oh Mercy was good, but I was that was around the time of Acid House and all that, so I wasn't really tuned in then. I had a mm. sort of break, you know, which sort of went most of the way through. I mean, I would still listen to it, but I wasn't immersed in it all. People forget it- that those '80s records. Tight Connection, I mean, I, I difficult to remember the titles here, but Tight Connection to My Heart, is that the one that goes, Has Anybody Seen My Love? Is that the chorus? Yep. I think it is. Yep. Which I yeah. think is on Empire Burlesque. Is that correct? Yeah, I remember yeah. that being on the radio and thinking, yeah. oh, that's Bob Dylan, you know, and he, he kind of sounds a bit contemporary. But, um, yeah, I'm probably the same as you. I think um, I was aware of Oh Mercy as a thing. But did you get into Oh Mercy, which I think is a really good album? I did later. You I, did, I, did late, I did later on. Mm-hmm. My point of re-entry, and this is maybe why, I mean, in terms of really fixating on his music and, and really thinking about it and reading as I much, as much as I could about it, my point of re-entry after Acid House and Britpop, because I was working on music magazines where, you know, I mean, it sort of blew everyone off course, really, but you have to, you know, unfortunately, I had to think about Cast and Cooler Shaker and all of these groups that now, you know, lost the history. But yeah. my point of re-entry really was Time Out of Mind in 97, which is just when Britpop started to sort of fade. Mm. And I suppose looking back, I was sort of craving something of more substance. Yeah, same year as Be Here Now, wasn't it? Yeah, so it all started to go weird year. That, but Princess Diana died that year That's as well. right, that's right. And um, I read, I think in Rolling Stone, Elvis Costello said he thought, I mean, you know, I don't necessarily agree with Elvis Costello on this or lots of other things, but Elvis Costello said it, he thought it was <laughs> the best album of Dylan's career which I'm not sure mm. it is, but there was this sense of, right, as a return to form here. So I went out and bought it. I bought it on vinyl for some reason. I've got a copy of it here. And that just, I'd been bad repeat listening over and over again. Once I heard Lovesick, I thought, wow, something's yeah. going on here. And from and right existed- the way to the Highlands, which is not only mysterious and beguiling, but hilariously funny. I mean, once that Erica Jong line came on, I thought, like, Erica Jong, I yeah. thought, right, okay, he's back. Yeah, yeah, hard-boiled eggs. bound, his hard-boiled eggs. Yeah. Cold Iron's Bound is great. It's got Make yeah. You Feel My Love on it. It's all mm-hmm. good, that record. Am uh, I the only person who thinks Make You Feel My Love is scary? Somehow, I find that a scary song. When the way Bob, not the song itself, it's the way Bob sings it. I'm going to make you feel my love, Kerry Shale, whether you like it, it or not. It that, just, that sort of thing. I just, I'm easily scared by Bob still. I mean, I was always scared by it. I was when I was a teenager, when I first heard Bob. I just thought he was uh, really scary, but I've got to start smoking dope well, again. He's, I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's not a nice song with Adele's version and all. It's quite... Oh, Adele's version is, yeah, is lovely. No, Adele's version is lovely. Bob Dylan's version is, is scary. 
He's crawling down an avenue, isn't he? It's a threat. Yeah, he's the man waiting at the gate. I will listen to that again with some trepidation. No, that's just me. So that was my sort of way back in. And um, and then let me try and think. Some I can't remember whether, whether it was sort of it was quite a way after Love and Theft. So Modern Times might have come out by then. I saw him play at the O2, and um, I knew Keris Matthews, the singer from Catatonia at the time, quite mm. well. And I watched it from the stage side of the stage. Was that the, the is that the one that you wrote the article about? Yeah, yeah. Were when I nearly met him, meet him, or when were you going to interview him? him? Yeah. Oh, tell us. Go on. Yeah. Were you supposed to interview him, or were you no, just no, not at all? And that made it even more nerve wracking. See if you. So you were going to be like Karis's friend, or so? How did you get in? Kind of in thing, there? yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. I think she made his acquaintance or spoken to him certainly prior to that. But um, when you're a journalist, if you go to interview, I mean, I've interviewed Paul McCartney, right? And I was really, really, really nervous before I interviewed Paul mm. McCartney. You can imagine your eternal monologue just goes off the scale. You know? Yeah, <laughs> you're going to meet Paul McCartney. You're going to meet Paul McCartney. Shut up. <laughs> You're going to meet Paul McCartney. Look at all his soundtrack in Abbey Road there. You're going to meet him in a minute. Show up. It's like that, right? As anyone would be. And you think, is this just me? Why am I getting so nervous? But anyone's going to be nervous. Right? Mm-hmm. But at least you have the safety net of your questions. And you know that you are there to interview Paul McCartney. And it will start at three o'clock and all that, right? But if you're sort of meeting someone and being introduced to them, which is what I thought was going to happen, right? Then mm. you haven't got a script. You know, if I did met him and interview him, I would still have the small talk would have been appalling, and I, and I would have run out of breath. You know, hello, hello, Bob, and all that. You know, but I would have been able to say, "Should we start then?" So, what yeah. you know, what's the latest album mean or whatever? But I didn't have that. So, uh, I, thankfully, I wasn't aware that that was a possibility as I watched it from the stage, which was amazing, and it was a great gig that night. I remember the way they played Lonesome Day Blues was just brilliant. This lovely gnarly version of it, and um, there was a ramp or a sort of walkway coming off the stage and as they finished I saw Bob Dylan walking which is quite he walks he's got a, quite an interesting gait mm-hmm. he sort of walks on his tiptoes a bit you know and um, the way I remember it I mean this might be romanticising it after the fact is it, I caught his eye or he caught mine and I nodded at him and he nodded back and I, th- and I, and I thought internally well that'll do me and go home <laughs> yeah, now yeah. really uh, and then they said do you want to meet Bob someone said do you want to meet Bob and like in Spinal Tap, you know, backstage of the O2 is this absolute warren of corridors and staircases and all of that. And my internal monologue and all that was going crazy. I mean, that was just sort of, what am I going to say? I mean, I can go in and say that was a great show, but I mean, you know, everybody says that, right? But equally, I can't say, why didn't you release Blind Willie McTell at the time? I've always wanted to ask him or whatever, so can't ask him that. And then sort of brain fog settled in. And again, this is probably not quite what happened, but in my memory, we got to this door and I was convinced on the other side of it that was going to be Bob Dylan and someone opens the door like, whoa! And the room was empty. And then a voice said, I think he's gone off with Eric Clapton. (laughs) At which point this euphoric relief spread over me, like, oh, thank God. And it was really nice. I then got in a, I then got in a, a, a splitter van, I think it was, like a tour van with his band. (laughs) <laughs> and I met Jim. I met Jim Keltner and Larry Campbell mm. and Charlie Sexton, and I think I met Tony Garnier and all that. And then we I had dinner with them in the hotel, and it was really nice. And Larry Campbell's lovely fella, and the fact that I was having dinner—it was a bit. You're having dinner with Jim Keltner. You're having dinner with Jim Keltner. 
Mm. You don't have a dinner yeah, with Jim Keltner. <laughs> did you ask any stupid questions, or did you just? Not as talk I recall, I think they. I think I let them lead the conversation. I think I was a bit mm. sort of in awe. Charlie Sexton really liked the Fast Show. Oh, that's hysterical! And kept quoting from the Fast Show. <laughs> he would go, "Which is nice," and all this stuff, you know, Scorchio and all this business. <laughs> But he looked, I mean, Charlie Sexton looks great, right? I mean, he's sort of, he's sort of rock and roll personified. Him. Yeah, absolutely. So it was, that was a lovely, lovely memory. And the, and the gig was really great and all that. And then I mean, that's, that's my, again, you know, I suppose, because I wasn't around in the 60s. That's why those, that run of records has such a sort of golden glow for me, right the way through to Modern Times, which I wrote about for Mojo. That's what, three what, uh, three records into it's like a trilogy, isn't it? although it extends beyond. Yeah. That. So yeah, it's that that period I think is great, and as you've said earlier on, I think it sort of stands comparison to. I mean, arguably, it's still going on. I think Rough and Rowdy Ways sounds like it's part of the same moment, even though it's twenty or twenty five years on. What did you make of um, just modern times? Uh, personally, I was slightly disappointed by it. Just. I don't reach for it the same way I reach for Love and Theft. No, I, th- I didn't think it was. I gave it a good review because it is pretty great. I like the last track on it. Is it called Just Walking? Yeah, Just Talking. Which has a bit of, it's a bit like Sugar Baby. It's almost like it's mm-hmm. purposely conceived of as being the finale, you know, and it, you're meant to conceive of him sort of wandering off into the mist at the end of mm-hmm. the record. But the sum of it doesn't quite have the sort of mystery and old weird America to quite the same extent as Love and Death. It seemed a bit literal. Like is that the one man, that's got working man's, working man's blues? Yeah. I thought that was a bit I find straight, really tedious. I, I a bit straight ahead. I think yeah. I prefer Modern Times to Love and Theft. I, I, wow. Something about the singing, yeah, and the playing. Modern Times got its hooks in me when it came out more than Love and Theft did, and I just played it and played it and played it. And I, always I don't recall it, but the other thing I like about Love and Theft is how funny it is, and, and there isn't that quality on Modern Times. There's nothing like Poe Boy on it. But mm. also, the one he squeezed those ridiculous lyrics that get squeezed into lines that can't contain him. Atello told, yeah. Atello told Desdemona, yeah. Yeah. I'm cold, cover me with a blanket. By the way, what happened to that poison wine? I think I gave it to you, you drank it, or whatever you think. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And there's one about Romeo and Juliet, which, which I get a useful touch, why don't you shove off if it bothers you that much and all that? There's yeah. loads of it. On. Yeah. So I, 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 that's why I like Love and Theft, is simultaneously has a lot of weight, but as a lightness of touch, you know. And I, I remember Modern Times feeling a bit heavy by comparison. It's a good record. It's a good record, yeah. yeah but I, I, I do agree. I, I mean, I, do, I think just if you can crack a, a smile occasionally during a, the listening of a Bob Dylan album, it's, it's like that the darkness parts, you know, and there's a little ray of sunshine. And I consider that kind of a gift from, from Dylan in the midst of all this, this apocalyptic Gloom, which I love. I love the gloom, but uh, I like the light. I like the combination of them. And, and as you say, I'm, you say I'm over the hill. You say I'm past my prime. You know, we can have a womp and good time. It's about the only bit of lightness on there. But I don't know. Maybe it says more about yeah. me that I like the bleakness. He was. It was the. He was still for all that. That's true. And I don't know whether I disappoint is the right word. I just thought, well, I don't quite like this as much. But he was still sort of on a roll. Mm. absolutely which to yeah. state the obvious I mean, compared to most of his contemporaries i mean this goes right up to rough and rowdy ways it's so mm-hmm. sort of unprecedented and without parallel and the fact, all those things that i'm sure you've had a thousand conversations about on here before about the fact that age and experience are so built into it you know well very few musicians have been interested in in that they haven't really had that phase of their career 
you know, and certainly a lot of musicians who's the roughly the same age as, whether it's Brian Wilson or Paul McCartney or, or Mick Jagger. I mean, that's none of them have done that sort of old grizzled second act that he seems think, to have. Oh, yeah, I think McCartney. I think McCartney. That's true of to some extent, right? I mean, the Rolling Stones mm. sort of exist in denial of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of that's kind of part of the point. But I want you know. Notwithstanding the scary qualities Kerry spoke about earlier, um, I want him to be an old guy. You know, that's mm. what I like about these records. Well, I like the no, way, just... and I like the way his voice sounds. You know, it doesn't it doesn't bother. I mean, yeah. again, as Grill Marcus said, there was some point round about the early nineties where he just went <laughs> and the voice had gone. But it doesn't. He you know, his lungs out. It's fine. You know, that's what I want him to sound like. That it sounds great. How else are you going to sing Lonesome Day Blues or Goodbye Jimmy Reed? You got to sing them in that voice. P.J. O'Rourke, the uh, American humorist, uh, one of his favorite uh, quotes is, um, age and guile will beat youth and a bad haircut every time. That applies to Bob, I guess, and and whoever's coming up. Do you have any controversial uh, Bob Dylan opinions, John? I knew you were going to ask me this. Did you? (laughs) What what do you not dare say to the the great and the good? But it's very, see, the point is the world has so changed now partly because there's just a great ocean of music available everywhere, but also there are so many sort of rock experts and contrarians now. You go, you know, everyone's got one of those, haven't they? Some friend mm-hmm. who sinks four lagers and tells you that Undercover of the Night is the greatest Rolling Stones <laughs> And everybody knows, everybody knows. You know this? <laughs> I know that person, yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Every, Dirty work. Great, that's, that's that's great. Yeah. We used to have a game in the pub called Exactly. Where you would say that? What's your favourite Rolling Stones album? Undercover the Night. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but everybody knows somebody like that, right? And because of that guilty pleasures thing now, you know. I mean, even Self Portrait yeah. has been rehabilitated, hasn't it? Yep. On this program. There you go. So, is there really a difficult? I mean, you know, the one I thought about, an album I really, really love, right? And it has certain associations with the enduring relationship that I'm still in now, and all that is New Morning. Which is not considered canonical, really, but I love Absolutely. that record. I don't think it puts a foot wrong. You know, I think we're all in agreement on that one. I've I've, I've come to that in the last sort of seven eight years, as, and it's it's in my top ten now. It never used to be. I absolutely adore it. Yeah, and I like the fact. Uh, this is again, it's going to contradict what I said a moment ago about mystery and depth and all the rest of it. But there's not a whole lot there. I mean, it's, it's just uh, some of it. The title track, for example, "The Man in Me," is a bit like this as well. They're just straight-ahead songs about domestic bliss and where mm. he was at at the time. But if you're experiencing a degree of domestic bliss, they're great records, great songs. Sign on the Window, yeah. similarly. I mean, Sign on the Window's like that, but then that version of Sign on the Window that was on another self-portrait with the Al mm. Cooper string arrangement on it, I, I have to be very careful when I listen to that because it makes me cry. When it has those great swelling strings and he sings, mm. build me a cabin, you tour and all that. Yeah. have a bunch of kids that call me part that must be what it's all about I'm well enough saying this you know I mean it's and that line about rainbow trout and all that I mean it's mm. it's lovely I, but yeah, also totally when you see the gypsies on that record and once you know that it might possibly be about him meeting Elvis yeah I mean okay I'll play that record for a week yes <laughs> The thing that, that it's so that makes it I think a really special album is it's not it doesn't seem to be ironic at all. Um, oh. And yet it's and yet it's weird. I mean, it's a lot weirder than Nashville Skyline. Um, there's that Three Angels song, which mm. is a very Bob Dylan song, quite to me 
impenetrable, but in a in a good way. It's just, it's good yeah. poetry, and I I like uh, when dogs uh, if dogs run dogs free. free, yeah, which is either either sort of whimsical or quite or weird, and I, mm-hmm. I I sort of tilt towards the latter. Like, why are you singing that exactly? I love it's Winterlude as well. You know, I, I adore Winterlude. And that's, that's a, people look at me funny when I say that sometimes. But, you know, Winterlude, this dude thinks you're fine, gives me great, great pleasure as a rhyme, you know? Also, he's still, he's, that sort of vocal reinvention that happened around Nashville Scarlet is still sort of there, but his voice mm-hmm. is getting, it's like he's back on the fags, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in, a good, a, in a good way. He's going a little bit, it's not quite as, as honky as it, as it was on Nashville Scarlet. So he's yeah. sort of coming back a bit. I think New Morning got bad reviews at the time. Um, I think it got maybe 60-70% good reviews, uh, as, as I recall. I think some people said, you know, a return to form and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it's, it's, it has gotten sort of lost in the Well, it wasn't self-portrait, canon. but it wasn't yet Blood on the Tracks, I guess, is, is roughly where it was, chronologically and also review-wise. Um, I mean, I won't, I won't hear a bad word said against, against Planet Waves. I adore Planet Waves. Yeah, I think of those two records in, in the same terms for some reason. I don't quite know why. They sort of sit alongside yeah. each other for some reason. To me, Planet Waves was, I, I, I like it less than New Morning, considerably less. Probably because I, I, uh, I found it scary in a way. I found it scary for, <laughs> for Sarah. I, I thought, you know, Dirge is a really angry, disturbing. Mm. If anybody else had written that, sung that, you would have thought, well, his marriage is not just in crisis, it's over. His heart has completely turned to stone against this woman. And I found that, I f- I found that frightening. On the same album, there's On a Night Like This, which is mm. absolute pure love and joy. And, and that's, you know, that's Dylan, black and white and everything. But I, It's all that, those, I, that juxtaposition, also for the fact that Forever Young's on that record as well. So you've got that, for, you know, mm. the, the song that is still played at christenings and weddings and funerals and everything, sitting alongside Dirge is peculiar, isn't it? I mean, the other the, the record, and this is umbilically tied to um to that record, which again for years was seen as a, a very sort of a contrarian non new choice. Is um I really like before the flood, yeah. But tour seventy four gets a really bad rap, and it's said it's really sort of overblown and bombastic. But that's what I really like about it. And also, there's some very interesting arrangements and fabulous uh, new lyrics. Um, in fact, Luke, I think before we started doing this podcast, you you sent me. Uh, before the flood, and uh, you know, sort of insisted, yeah, that I listen to it again because I, when I first heard it, I think the first track, I think is the what's the first track? Most likely, you go your way, which is yeah. Well, for some reason, I I got it when it came out, and to me, I could hear the you know the the arena sound of it, and I I hated it, um, and I never really gave it a chance after that. But now I I think it's really good, and of course, and it has the, the legendary Watergate. It's all right, my moment on it. Which is yeah. in its own quite, you know, that's like the, the the Judas moment of Nixon's America, isn't it? It's like a, just another when you get a bit of a live album, it just tells you exactly where you are and what's going on. Exactly, but but people, I think, still ever since then have always cheered. Even the president of the United States must have to stand naked, no matter who the president. They probably did it with Obama in a kind of a loving yet slightly ironic way. I tweeted it about Trump and someone just destroyed me and came back to me and they said, oh, what it is to be an old white man. (laughs) Fair dues. You have my number. Yes. At least you're not an old orange man. No, that's true. Exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe he's white down there. Who knows? (laughs) Um, 
Very good. Yeah. He's white all over, I think. Yes, yeah. he's the most white man in America. Can I ask you a question about your uh, Hail Hail Rock and Roll book? This is yeah. a, this is a, a, forgive me, I know you're our guest, but this is a, a, a something, a, a little, another little issue take, but I know you're taking the piss, but you did a section on crap rhymes. Yes. In your Hail Hail Rock and Roll book, yes. 2009. And you said that in Like a Rolling Stone, uh, diplomat rhyming with Siamese cat, yeah. rhyming with discover that, rhyming with where it's at, yeah. was a crap rhyme. Yeah. So really? Yeah. Is it Siamese cat diplomat? Isn't yeah. that great? Carries on his shoulder a Siamese cat. Well, no one says that. They say carries a Siamese cat on his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, but nobody, I know, but that's like, that's like Luke is always pissed off by um, what a series of dreams. All I, all I could do, no, what is it, Luke? All I seem to be doing was climb. All I seem to be doing was climb. Climbing. And Luke climbing. always goes climbing, yeah. climbing. But that's what's great about it, the, the shitty syntax to me. But, um, but we'll have to agree to, dis, to disagree. But to see a sign, <laughs> yeah, to I mean, yeah, it's only in the nature cat. of authorship. We were probably running out of entries. I was thinking, God, we need another three to fill the page here. I don't know. No, I know you, because you don't mention Dylan that often, because the whole book is a giant piss take. And so you, you, you go about, one whole page. It's a bit more affectionate than that, but I... I I take your point. We are sort of trying. Well, you 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 destroy Sting in the same section. You really tromp hard on various other people. Whereas, as I, I think that was that was playful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I think that's for the "Don't Stand So Close to Me" and the rhyme of "Cough" and "Nabokov" or something. I mean, something yes. terrible like that. So let's <laughs> yes. not go there. But I think also, and we've sort of alluded to this at a few points in, in this conversation. I don't know about those bobcat people who are completely immersed in it and go and see 19 dates on a given tour because I've never really spoken to them. Mm -hmm. But most people I talk to about Bob Dylan, including you, have a keen sense of of the fact that sometimes the absurdity and all that is kind of part of it. And he knows that as well, right? Yeah. So yeah. I bet he probably winked when he sang that line about the Siamese cat. It, you know, yeah. it's okay. That That's that's the point. Just as it, it never sort of goes overboard into sort of sting territory when it gets far too overwrought because it, because of who he is and the fact that the wink and the nod and the little impish skip on his feet is never that far away. So um, here's a question we haven't asked anybody. Uh, which Dylan song would you have played at your funeral if you had any wow. Dylan song? Wow, so, played? okay, so this is not going to be humorous now. I've heard of one of the most moving occasions I've ever been at a funeral was one of Bob Dylan songs, mm -hmm. which is a John Baldy's funeral. So for mm -hmm. listeners who don't know, yeah. although most of your listeners probably do, John Baldy was the Britain's leading authority on Bob Dylan, really. He ran the Telegraph, the, the Dylan fanzine, uh, and wrote this, compiled this brilliant anthology called Wanted Man, which is all memories of Bob Dylan. And I was just lucky enough to work with him at Q Magazine. And John was in a helicopter crash. Died completely unexpectedly. And um, his funeral was, I think, was at, I remember it was at Kensal Rise Crematorium. And obviously it was not one of those funerals like an old person where there's a sort of, you know, celebrate their life thing. Everyone was completely in shock and um, they played, he was a friend of mine at that funeral. Oh, it was just the, oh that's the most moving occasion I think I've ever been at a funeral. Hmm. Um, and I can't think of, you know, there aren't many artists, many pieces of recorded music that, that have all the, the gravitas and all that emotion that you, you wanted at a moment like that. So, um, that's my sort of association with that. I mean, as, as regards my own funeral, I mean, it's, it's an obvious choice. And I, but Visions of Johanna, because that's, I'm of, I feel like I'm, even though I'm, it's 2021, I'm a creature of the 20th century. I'm a creature of 
New York when it was romantic and all lit up and, you know, the A-train rattling along and when motorways were new and there were three channels of TV and all that. I mean, that's the world I grew up in, right? And the hymn, really, H-Y-M-N, to that sort of peak of post-war modernism and the sort of magic of electricity and neon light and gas stations all lit up and when America seemed very alluring and that. I mean, that's what Visions of Johanna is, right? I think it's just an encapsulation of all the sort of awful wonder of the 20th century. And um, all of it just floors me. And, um, yeah, it's a way of sort of saying goodbye, I suppose. I'd that'd be like, well, their egos, he was of that time. Uh, any, um, any final thoughts about uh, Dylan's 80th birthday, John? Well, I go, I go along with what Andrew Motion, I think, said the uh the poet and writer and big dylan fan i think i remember seeing and i think it was on the occasion of another significant dylan birthday maybe when he was 75 or something he said look being on the earth at the same time as bob dylan and being able to go and see him and all that is like being around when shakespeare was around you you're probably familiar with that quote you're both nodding right and i think that's absolutely right that manifests itself in quite a sort of basic way which is that even if he's having an off night it's always occurred to me the whole point or the, one of the points of going to see Bob Dylan is so you can stand there and say, look, it's Bob Dylan over there. <laughs> and that's enough, right? But it so happens, and this is the reason I think fundamentally why I chose a piece of music from Love and Theft and why we've talked about modern times and rough and rowdy ways and all that, is he's still here and he's in another purple patch. In fact, I would argue he's only sort of gone off the boil once, really, which was in the 80s, right? And it sort of And it picks up after that. And what a great privilege that is, really. And the fact that he's eight years old, and I want to, I want to know what comes after Rough and Rowdy Ways and all of that. So, um, what a combination! Usually, people are in their artistic dotage, aren't they, by the time they get to that age? And I don't really feel that about him. I still want to know what he's got to say, and I think he wants to sort of find out as well somehow. Is it Rolling Bob talking Dylan? Is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside. Immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Digital imaging by Finn Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Half-racked prejudice leaped forth. Rip down all hate, I screamed. Lies that life is black and white spoke from my skull. I dreamed romantic facts of musketeers, foundationed deep somehow. Ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now.